morning and welcome in to the worldwide sports radio network it is the ryan hickey show with you right here on what is another busy nfl day it's amazing this is by far the craziest nfl season or really nfl off season i should say we have ever seen this is chaotic russell wilson moving deshaun watson moving Devontae adams getting traded and now Tyreek Hill, the latest in a long line of star NFL players changing locations this offseason. And boy, was it a shock. And boy, was it another blockbuster. So, of course, we got you covered right here on the Worldwide Sports. Right now, breaking this trade down from the Dolphins' perspective, they finally answer the biggest question hanging over their organization. I'll tell you what that question is and how they answer it. Who is now the best team in the AFC? Is it still the Chiefs? They still have Patrick Mahomes. They still have Andy Reid. They still have Travis Kelsey. Are the Chiefs, after trading away Tyree Kill, still the best team in the conference, in a very loaded conference? So we got that covered for you. Uh, also, New York City is announcing today that they are uh, making exemptions for athletes in New York City, which means... Kyrie Irving will make his return to the court full-time starting on Sunday. So now, are the Nets all of a sudden favorites in the East? We'll discuss that. And finally, I will make the case why there is one perfect team for Baker Mayfield to go to next year, and it's a spot where he will not be the starter. I'll explain why it's still a great landing spot for Baker Mayfield. So as you could tell, it's a Thursday. It is jam-packed. It is loaded. We got the Sweet 16 tonight as well. I'm going to get you all jacked up, ready to go here over the next two hours. We are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios, where there's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. Let's look at the Tyreek Hill trade from the Chiefs' perspective. If Kansas City doesn't package the picks doesn't package the Miami picks. They got all five of them to parlay that into a trade for, let's say, a Tyler Lockett or a DK Metcalf, which calls have been, at least reportedly, already been made from the Kansas City side about those two receivers. The Kansas City Chiefs are no longer the team to beat in the AFC. Forget the entire conference. The Chiefs right now, if they don't get a bona fide stud receiver to replace Tyreek Hill this offseason, they're not even the best team in their own division. To me, the Broncos right now are the team to beat if the Chiefs don't make any other significant move at receiver. Again, that would be Lockett, that would be Metcalf. That, to me, is how impactful this Tyreek Hill trade is, and that is how negatively this trade impacts Kansas City moving forward. Yes, before we go any further... I didn't forget about Patrick Mahomes. Andy Reid is still alive. Travis Kelsey is still one of, if not the best tight end in the NFL. I totally understand all three of those gentlemen are still there. And none of them 
have regressed at any point in their career recently. But that's how important, that's how much this move should reflect how integral Tyreek Hill was in this Kansas City offense. So taking him out, taking out an all-pro, Pro Bowl receiver, and instead replacing him with, let's say, a Mikel Hardman or a Marquez Valdez-Scantling. That is going to slow down the offense a lot this season and make defense's jobs a whole hell of a lot easier this year than last year when the Cheetah was still in the offense. Because let's look at the Kansas City offense right now. Without Tyreek Hill there, now obviously everyone's attention goes to Travis Kelsey. Outside of Travis Kelsey on the Chiefs offense, who is scaring you? If you're a team in the AFC or even if you're a team going up against Kansas City, outside of Travis Kelsey, which now you can use more resources against and double-team basically every play, who scares you on this Chiefs offense? Mikko Harmon is a speedster. He's kind of and was drafted uh, to be a Tyreek Hill-like clone. The issue is he's a role player. He's fast. His hands are iffy. He's not a reliable receiver. He is a guy who flourishes as the number four receiver when he's going against a you know going against a linebacker or like a backup safety. He cannot replace the attention and the role Tyree Kill had on this offense. Juju uh, Juju Smith Schuster. I get he's a really solid receiver. To me, he's not a number one receiver. He is not a guy that truly gives defenses nightmares at night. He is not someone that's going to vertically punish defenses the way Hill could. So I'm not really sweating Juju now going to Kansas City. Josh Gordon, we know, can't be trusted. So again, let me ask you, outside of Travis Kelsey, who on this Chiefs offense scares you? The answer is no one. Which again, makes defending Kansas City so much easier now when there's only one real threat Patrick Holmes can throw the ball to, and that is Travis Kelsey. Because the thing that can't be replaced, the thing that can't be overlooked, is how much attention Tyreek Hill commanded from defenses on a play-to-play basis. He has such a unique skill set. The reason why he is a top three receiver in the NFL is not just for his stats and his numbers, but because he takes so much attention that it makes everyone else's life easier, including Patrick Mahomes. So if we look at the numbers of what they're losing in a six-year receiver, Tyree Kill in his six years in Kansas City, six-time Pro Bowler. Literally a Pro Bowler every single year he's played with the Chiefs uniform. Three-time All-Pro. In his last five seasons, he's amassed just over 6,000 receiving yards. That is behind only Devontae Adams, DeAndre Hopkins. Great company to be in in terms of being the elite wide receiver. Again, he's a top three guy. The Chiefs shipped away in a Super Bowl window for draft picks, for projects, for question marks, which is everyone that is in the NFL draft, especially when you get the Dolphins' first round pick, which is 29th overall. It's the 49ers pick. So you are taking a chance, basically a shot in the dark, with picks 29 and 30 now, in trying to hope and pray that you get someone that can live up to even half of what Tyreek Hill could put up uh, style-wise, which as we just listed, again, six-time Pro Bowler in six years, three-time All-Pro, 
third most receiving yards last five years behind only Adams and Hopkins. That is not going to be an easy feat. And again, the reason why Tyree Kill's impact is so great and the reason why, to me, the Chiefs are no longer the team to be in the AFC is because his impact on the offense went far just beyond the stats. Right? He fit this offense perfectly. What does Patrick Mahomes like to do? What does he thrive at? Rolling outside the pocket, extending the play, and launching the ball 40 yards down the field. He has one of the strongest arms in all the NFL. He has great deep ball accuracy. And that home run threat Tyreek Hill possessed fit Patrick Mahomes' skill set perfectly. And he was a go-to deep ball threat. If you look at Tyreek Hill's career, I know his career started before Patrick Mahomes was in Kansas City. But so far in his six years in the NFL, Tyreek Hill has 28 touchdowns of 20 yards or more, number one in the NFL at that time. And he has 20 touchdowns of 50 yards or more, which is also number one in the last six years. He is a deep ball threat. And as we know, Patrick Mahomes loves keeping the play alive and loves looking deep. How many times has your team gotten burned by Patrick Mahomes rolling out and throwing the ball deep and finding Tyreek Hill wide open? I know as a Colts fan, I've seen it happen. I've watched many playoff games. I've watched many Chiefs comebacks that started with a deep ball to Tyreek Hill that took the top off the defense. That was Patrick Mahomes' go-to. And that was Tyreek Hill's specialty. So being literally, statistically, the best deep ball threat in the NFL the last six years, do you think, honestly, any receiver can just step up and fill that void? Do you think me, Cole Hardman, who is supposed to be a clone of Tyreek Hill, could step in and have that sort of production be that deep threat that Kansas City needs? No. Are they going to draft someone in the draft that can be able to fit what Tyreek Hill did and replace him? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because again, it goes just beyond the stats. His home run presence, his ability to take the top off of defense is important. But what can't be forgotten, what can't be overlooked, is just the threat of Tyreek Hill. Forget even just the production. The threat of Tyreek Hill on any given play forced defenses to really turn their attention towards him because no one wanted to get burned deep. No one wanted to give up a quick score and change momentum in the game. But the attention defenses paid to stopping Tyreek Hill, again, opened up the rest of the offense. Because when you're double covering Tyreek Hill, when you're dropping everyone deep, you knew how to field day in the middle. You knew who was feasting underneath on safeties, on linebackers, Travis Kelsey. Kelsey's unguardable. Part, part, now part, I'm not saying Travis Kelsey's overrated, but part of the reason why he has been so successful is because, again, when you have that deep threat, when you have that constant worry in the back of defense's minds, that, oh my God, Terry Kelsey's going to beat us deep. We can't allow him to do it. That takes some attention. That diverts some of the defense away from uh, Kelsey, which allows him to have more favorable matchups than, frankly, he should. He should be double covered every play, but it's not realistic because you had an outside deep threat of Tyree Kill there every single play. So not only with Travis Kelsey did his life get a little bit easier because of Tyree Kill's presence, but you also made other role players made their roles and made their jobs and made you know their matchups easier. Guys like Hardman, guys like Sammy Watkins when he was in Kansas City, Byron Pringle now has stepped in for Watkins' role. 
all those guys' jobs have been made easier because of Tyree Kill's threat. Because of his presence on the field. So now, it made the ancillary pieces, the second, third, fourth option on the play, it made their jobs easier. Got it easier to get open. Gave them more favorable matchups where now you're on, I don't know, the fourth string corner. Or a linebacker. That's just a mismatch. Tyree Kill's presence helped every single Chiefs offensive player. And instead now, with him off the Chiefs, take him out of the lineup... Teams are absolutely going to double uh, Travis Kelsey. And now if you take Kelsey away every single play, again, Juju, are you scared of him burning you? Josh Gordon, can you trust he's even going to be on the field? Byron Pringle now, is that giving defenses nightmares? No. There's no one right now that truly has you worried if you are an opposing defense that's going to really make your life hell. There's no one really out there that's proven they can take over a game the way Tyree Kill has. So I don't see how this, to me, move makes any sense if you're the Chiefs. Trading away a top three receiver for draft picks. Pay the man. Keep one of the most important and integral parts of your offense on the field. Keep the guy who serves as a distraction, even when he's not producing. For defenses to worry about that opens up Travis Kelsey that makes Patrick Mahomes' life a lot easier. Because guess what? We remember what happened last year. The Chiefs offense at, at times, especially in the middle of the year, couldn't figure it out. They were stagnant. They were struggling. Why? Because teams were playing prevent defense. They were taking away Tyreek Hill. They were double covering Travis Kelsey. And it took the Chiefs forever, it felt like, to figure it out. And guess what? In the AFC title game, it absolutely came back to bite them in the second half against the Bengals where they could not figure out that prevent defense. Now, their life is going to be made so much harder when you take away Tyreek Hill out of that lineup. You can't rely on the defense if you're Kansas City the Bell. Yeah, that defense is not very good. So again, it's going to have to be in the offense. You're going to win most of these games in a shootout. And now you basically, let's say, are playing with one hand or one arm tied behind your back because you took a top three receiver, one of the biggest mismatches, walking mismatch in all the NFL and traded him away for question marks. Traded him away, as I saw on Twitter by uh, someone based in Kansas City's name is Carrington Harrison, traded him away for lottery tickets. You could hit the lottery. You could draft the next Jamar Chase. You can get lucky in doing so. But guess what? If you don't, if you draft another Nicole Hardman, if you draft a Jalen Rager, this Chiefs offense is in big trouble. That to me is why the Broncos surpass them. Because the Broncos are balanced at every single position. They are deep. They are talented. They to me are the team to beat in the AFC West. They to me are the team to beat in the AFC. Because the Chiefs took a massive step back with the loss of Tyreek Hill. And now their offense is way less potent. Even with Reed, even with Mahomes, even with Kelsey than it was because of the loss of Tyreek Hill. So I'm curious your thoughts here. In your mind, despite no Tyreek Hill being on the Chiefs, are they still the team to beat in the AFC West? Are they still the top dogs and kings of the AFC? Or in your mind, is it someone else? Is it the Broncos? Is it the Bills? Is it the Chargers? Is it the Bengals? Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. 
And we're also on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Where do the Chiefs fall right now in the rankings of the AFC? We'll get your thoughts on that. And when we return, the Dolphins finally, finally, are able to answer the biggest question hanging over their franchise. We'll tell you what that question is and why Tyreek Hill answered it when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. The Dolphins, in acquiring Tua Tungavailoa, have finally given themselves a chance to answer the biggest question hanging over their franchise. The question is, can Tua Tungavailoa be a franchise quarterback? Can he be the guy in Miami to lead them to the playoffs, lead them to the promised land, and win a Super Bowl? They have not had a franchise guy since Dan Marino. The Dolphins have, to their credit, they've been looking. They've been looking high. They've been looking low. They've been looking left. They've been looking right. They have swung and missed on almost every single person since Dan Marino retired to find that next guy. And the reason why I love the Tyreek Hill trade, the reason why this trade is finally now going to answer whether two is a franchise guy or not is because the, for the first time in two is you know going to year number three now so the first time in his career he actually has enough around him to be able to evaluate whether he's a good quarterback or not the first two seasons you cannot evaluate whether Tua is a franchise guy. There's been a lot of evaluation, though, on Twitter. There's been a lot of talk about whether Tua can play well and pinning the struggles on him. Talking about how you know he's gotten benched a few times. Talking about how he throws the ball three yards every single pass. There are reasons why Tua did not throw the ball deep. There are reasons why Tua got banged up. The guy had no help around him. And so for the first time, the Dolphins are actually giving him a chance to show whether he can be the guy or not. So if you're the Dolphins, your only expectation, your only goal in 2022 should be finding out if Tua is your franchise guy or not. Playoffs, forget about For me, if you make them, it's gravy. But getting an answer on Tua. Forget about trying you know, to get 10 wins or more next season and competing in a very loaded AFC. The only goal I think the Dolphins should have next year is figuring out the future of Tua Tungavailoa. Is he our guy? Or do we have to use one of the two draft picks next year we have in the first round in the 2023 draft to either trade up to get a quarterback, maybe package those picks to trade for a disgruntled quarterback, whatever. Figure out a long-term answer. But at least we finally now will have concrete evidence one way or another on whether Tua can be the guy or not. Because you look, you add Tyreek Hill to Jalen Waddle, to recently signed offensive tackle Teron Armstead, to receiver Cedric Wilson, to tight end Mike Gusecki, to head coach Mike McDaniel. Again, for the first time and now heading to year number three of Tua's Dolphins career, there is enough talent to decipher whether Tua can be the guy next season. If he struggles... 
pull the cord. There's no excuse. You got to move on and find something else. But if he plays well, if he leads his team to the playoffs, if he leads them to a winning record and shows you this guy is pretty damn good when he has a good team around him, okay, you can feel confident going forward in a loaded AFC. You have a quarterback that could go toe-to-toe and hold his own with all the other young quarterbacks in this conference. And you look at what Tua has been dealing with each of the last few seasons. There are a lot of excuses I can make and I will make for his play. Like his struggles are well documented. Right, He was benched a few times in year number one for Ryan Fitzpatrick. Last year he got hurt and the Dolphins were 1-7 and seven before roaring back to eventually finish 9-8. and eight. But through the first two seasons, Tua has gotten exactly zero help around him. He was playing behind one of the worst offensive lines in all of the NFL. Through his first two seasons, Tua has been sacked a total of 40 times. Now, he's played in only 21 games. So basically, he's averaging getting sacked twice a game. Here's why that is significant. Tua doesn't hold on to the ball very long. The ball is snapped and it's out quick. So if for someone who gets the ball out as quick as he does, the fact he's getting sacked 40 times in 21 games highlights just how bad the offensive line around him is. Let's put some stats to it. Last year, Tua Tungvaloa, from snap to throw, had one of the quickest release times in all the NFL, 2.2 seconds on average. Between snap and throw was how long Tua held on the ball for. When it comes to starting quarterbacks, that was the fastest. Tua had the quickest release last year of any starting quarterback in the NFL. Think about that. And yet, he still was sacked 20 times last year. 40 times overall in two years. So he's getting the ball out quick. But it doesn't matter because his offensive line is so bad, they can't even keep a guy upright who has the quickest release in all of the NFL. That goes to show you how bad the O-line two has been playing behind for the last two years. Like, imagine how bad it has to be for you to get sacked 40 times in 21 games having the quickest release in the NFL. So now, this offseason, you add Teron Armstead. Three-time Pro Bowl tackle comes over from the Saints. That guy's a vet. He's experienced. He's a pro. The Dolphins have had a lot of youth on their offensive line the last few years. You're finally bringing a bona fide bookend tackle to give you some stability, give you some veteran leadership on a very young offensive line. You add Connor Williams from the uh, Cowboys to get some interior line depth as well. They are, the Dolphins are, finally giving Tua a chance with an offensive line that can block for more than 2.2 seconds. But it wasn't just the pass blocking that killed Tua. It was also the run game, or frankly, lack thereof. The Dolphins have been one of the worst rushing teams in all of the NFL the last two years. They were 30th last year in terms of rushing yards per game as a team, 92.2. They were 22nd the year before that. So they are bottom third of the NFL each of the last two years and gotten worse from 2020 to 2021 when it comes to running the ball. Guess what? No rushing attack means teams don't have to worry about the run and they can solely focus 
on slowing the passing game down. They can pin their ears back if you're an edge rusher, not having to worry about the run. If you're a secondary, you guys can blitz a ton or just play the pass and get ready to try to pick off Tua. No rushing attack made Tua's life hell. It made, you know, gave the offense no bounce. So the offense became predictable. Not to mention the, the offense coordinators have just been a mess in Miami. But part of the reason why is because there's no semblance of a run game each of the last two years in Miami. So again, you bolster the offensive line to give you some depth and give you some ability to not only pass block, but also have some success in the run game. You have Raheem Mostert, you add Chase Edmonds, you sign fullback Alec Ingold, which I think is a, a big deal considering this is one of the worst rushing teams in all the NFL, and now you are giving yourself a chance to establish the run. Get a more consistent run game for, frankly, the first time into his career. So you bolster the offensive line. You give him a chance to throw the ball. You have running backs that are capable of ripping off more than two yards of carry. You are starting to bring some balance to the offense to give to a chance. In 2022, they didn't have last year or his rookie year. So now in 2022, Tua finally has some sort of competent offensive line, finally has on paper a rushing attack that won't be bottom of the barrel in the NFL, and now he has some real receivers to throw to. You want to get on Tua, there's been a lot of critiques on his game, how he throws the ball three yards, he doesn't throw the ball deep. Again, forget the fact he doesn't have time to throw the ball deep. Also, let's look at the receivers he's thrown to. He doesn't have anyone to throw the ball to. Devontae Parker is a talented receiver. The issue for Devontae Parker is the guy's never on the field. He's always hurt. He's always dealing with some sort of nagging injury that impacts his play. He's been in the NFL seven years. He's, had, he's played one full season in those seven years. Every single year, it's something else with Devontae Parker. He's always hurt. He's always missing some time. So the most talented receiver to his hat so far in his two years in the NFL has you know yet to consistently be on the field. They signed Will Fuller last year, which was highway robbery for Will Fuller because the guy is a ghost. You can't see him on the field. He's never out there. The guy catches one deep ball early in the year, every single season, whether he's with the Texans or even last year with the Dolphins. He gives fans hope. Oh, my God, Will Fuller is going to take the top off the defense every single week. And then the guy's hurt a week later. Then he disappears. He's a ghost on the field. So you sign Will Fuller. I say you basically don't sign him at all because, again, outside of week two, the guy's MIA. Albert Wilson is not anyone. Anyway, he's not a very good receiver at all. So, again, I'll ask you, who is uh, Tua throwing the ball to? You want to complain and you want to bitch about Tua not throwing the ball deep. Statistically, those stats can back you up because the Dolphins last year, according to next-gen stats, or last year, I should say, last year, according to next-gen stats, the Dolphins were the only team without multiple deep passing touchdowns. You want to blame Tua, he'll get the blame right away. You know who I'm going to blame? The offensive line for not giving them time. I'm going to blame the receivers for not getting open and not having a deep threat. And I'm, I'm going to blame uh, the play calling because they weren't very creative, weren't very good. So again, for the first two years, we almost can scrap everything we know about Tua because the O-line was... And nowhere near competent. The run game was non-existent. And the receivers stunk. And if they were talented, they were hurt. 
So now, you look at what the Dolphins did this offseason. They are finally giving Tua a chance to sink or swim. They're not throwing him in the deep end with two cinder blocks tied to his legs and say, hey, try to float. And then when he can't float, blame out on him for not being you know, a good swimmer. They are finally throwing him in the deep end, but giving him a life raft, giving him a chance to succeed. When you add Tyree Kill, you now finally bring a consistent deep threat to where we can see now if Tua can constantly air it out. When you add Teron Armstead, you will now give this offensive line a chance to actually block someone and not get beat every, you know, half second the ball is snapped. You actually give Tua time now to drop back and have time for the receivers to run deep. You will actually now give Tua a chance to go through his progressions and not basically be a one read and run or one read and duck quarterback because the pass rush is bearing down on him so fast. You bolster the offensive line to give Tua time. You also allow it to have the run game gain some strength and gain some steam, which it did not do either of the last two seasons. You now bring a bona fide deep threat, the arguably best excuse me, deep threat in all of the NFL and Terry Kill. So now we can see if Tua has the arm strength to throw the ball deep, if he has the deep ball accuracy to hit Terry Kill on a consistent basis. He has Jalen Waddle underneath, so while teams and defenses are panicking about stopping Terry Kill deep, you now also have an equally fast player in Jalen Waddle underneath torching defenses there as well. You have a big body tight end, Mike Kiseki, as a safety valve to throw the ball to. The Dolphins, for the first time in his career, have given Tua a chance to succeed. And that's why, to me, I love this move so much. Forget about the talent that they had. Forget about trying to become a playoff team now. The Dolphins, most importantly, in 2022, are allowing themselves to answer the the question that hangs over their franchise and will determine the success and the path that the franchise goes down by answering the biggest question, which is, is Tua Tungavailoa a franchise quarterback or not? Can he play or can he not? Was Alabama a mirage or was the Dolphins just so bad that it didn't allow him to thrive? We finally now will be able to answer that question in good faith, and not rush to conclusion, rush to judgment, without truly knowing because the team around him was so bad. So the Dolphins have room. The Dolphins have flexibility in the draft next year to make some moves to a camp play. But if he can, you can feel confident going forward with Mike McDaniel as head coach. By the way, I should add this. A head coach that actually believes in Tua. I like Brian Flores, head coach, that is unfairly fired. But let's call for what it is. He did not like Tua. He did not believe in Tua. He wanted Sean Watson, which I can't blame him with. I can't blame him for. But there was never really any moments where Brian Flores did right by Tua. There's always questions. There's always speculation of who is going to replace the lefty next. You get a head coach at Mike McDaniel that seemingly, at least, is going to give you a chance to succeed, that seemingly believes in you. And now you have the talent around you on the O-line, running back room, and, t- and receiver room to actually show whether you can play or not. So that is why, to me, this Tyree Kill addition is so important for the Dolphins. They will answer the most pressing question of their future and be able to answer it in just a year. 
I think Tua can have success as a franchise quarterback. How about yourself? Can he develop into the franchise guy in your mind? Tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. Love to hear you on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Ray Network. Facebook, same handle, Worldwide Sports Ray Network. So we get your thoughts when we return here. Can Tua develop into a franchise quarterback? And when we return, the Nets are getting a huge, huge boost to their lineup because today New York City is changing their vaccine mandate and allowing Kyrie Irving to play in home games starting today. But they don't play at home till Sunday. Are the Nets the favorites in the Eastern Conference now with Kyrie back full-time? We'll discuss when we return to listen to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. Where else? The Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 15 minutes from now, who is the best team in the AFC? We will break that down, whether it's the Chiefs or another team. But it is a good day if you are a fan of the Brooklyn Nets. Because today is it, expe- uh, it is expected that New York City will roll back their vaccine mandate and basically give an exemption now to all New York City athletes, meaning Kyrie Irving is back to being eligible to playing in home games starting on Sunday. So Kyrie, outside of playing in Toronto against the Raptors, which could be significant for the play-in tournament, other than that, Kyrie Irving will now be able to be uh, eligible to play in every single game Home and away starting on Sunday. Obviously, massive news for multiple reasons. Number one, selfishly, I am so relieved, so happy we can stop talking and listening to discussions about whether Kyrie should get the vaccine, not get the vaccine, whether the New York City mandate is fair or not. I am sick and tired of hearing the word vaccine and sports personally. I'm just relieved we don't talk about it ever again. Kyrie's playing. There's no more discussion. Baseball players are playing. Whether you're vaccinated or not, it doesn't matter. We no longer have to talk about how it's unfair that unvaxxed uh, road players can play, but Kyrie can't. It is finally now, thankfully, out of the discussion talk, and we don't have to worry about it anymore going forward. Obviously, also, with that being said, we don't have to then, in the playoffs, talk about how much of a disadvantage the Nets are at because Kyrie Irving is not playing because of the vaccine mandate and can't play in home games. That's another conversation I frankly didn't want to have because I don't care about. I don't want to have to sit here and judge the validity of a series in which the Nets are in um, because Kyrie Irving can only play in three or four of the games out of seven. So I'm very happy, very glad that now with this mandate being repealed, there's kind of no asterisk uh, on the playoffs. It is Kyrie is back full time. There is no excuse anymore. But the question is now, with Kyrie back on a full-time basis, obviously the Nets are more formidable with a kyrie KD duo, but are they now the team to beat in the East? Is a KD kyrie duo better than what the Bucks have in Milwaukee? Better than the Sixers in Philly? Better than what the Heat got going on? Down there on South Beach. Are the Nets the favorites now with Kyrie back full-time coming out of the East? 
My answer is absolutely not. They are still not the favorites. They should not be the favorites. And I don't think they're getting to the finals because the road to get there is too hard. They are too deep and too buried in the standings. And I think too many teams are playing well ahead of them Well, they will, where they will be able to overcome three grueling series in a row in order to make the finals. So I don't think they're winning the title this year. I don't think they're making it out of the East because when you look at the path they're on, it's too tough, even with Kyrie back at full time. Because where the Nets are is we have just 10 games left in this season. The Nets are 38 and 35. That is good enough for eighth place right now in the East, which puts them squarely in the play-in mix. Now they're six and or the three and a half games behind the Raptors. Um, so from you know two and a half games against the uh, behind the Raptors, excuse me. So that's still enough of a gap to where I don't think they'll be able to close that gap in ten games to one number one get the playing game in Brooklyn instead of. Uh, Toronto, which Kyrie still cannot play, by the way, which is going to be uh, very uh, interesting for sure. But if the Raptors stay at seven and host the Nets in a playing game, that's going to be a very brutal game. But the Nets, for the most part, they are three and a half games out of or from getting out of the playing tournament. I don't think they'll close that gap with the Cavaliers or the Raptors. They'll be in the playing tournament. So if you go to Toronto without Kyrie and lose, You'll play the winner of the Hornets or the Shaw, uh, or the uh, Hawks to get into the playoffs. I think they'll win that game and they'll be in the playoffs. But if you lose to the Raptors and now drop down to the eighth seed, your first round series is against the Heat. I get yesterday it went viral with, with Eric Spolstra and Jimmy Butler um, going at it on the sideline and Udonis Haslam ready to fight Jimmy Butler on the sideline. It was chaotic. It was crazy. But when you look at the Heat team and how they're built, that tenacity, that intensity is what the team is all about. And for me, this is a team that is built to win in the playoffs. I get that they're the number one seed in the East, but they, to me, are a team that's absolutely built to win in the playoffs because this team with Kyle Lowry, with Jimmy Butler, with the really tough defense they play, with the consistent scoring they have and that mentality, it is going to be draining. It is going to be exhausting if you're the Nets. So even if you win that series and beat the Heat, okay, great. Now your reward is the Red Hot Boston Celtics, the Milwaukee Bucks, even the Sixers. I think the Nets would win that series. But again, there's a lot of talent there. It's going to be a back and forth, grinded out series. So the Nets, you look at their path to the finals, you could see a path of them going to have to play the Raptors in a one-game playing tournament in Toronto without Kyrie Irving. Then playing the Heat in round one, let's say the Bucks or the Sixers in round two, and the Celtics in the conference finals, or some, you know, some combination of those teams. That is a freaking grind, man. That is too tough for me, even with the talent the Nets have, to overcome. Because Kyrie Irving, to his credit, hasn't playing great. Right? Like he has been a huge boost now, and you see the way he's been playing recently. He's going to be a huge lift to this team. Like, if you look at just the last four games, these stats are courtesy of StatMuse. Last four games, again, all on the road that Kyrie has played, he is averaging 43.8 points per game. He is shooting 62% from the field. And on 11 attempts from three a game on average, he is shooting 61% from three. So the guy is white hot. He is shooting 
arguably the best stretch of his career. Even with that said, though, now bringing him back on a full-time basis, I still think the road for the Nets is too difficult. It's too hard. Because another big question mark, another big key to their success is supposed to be Ben Simmons. And guess what? It does not seem like Ben Simmons is coming back anytime soon. Steve Nash revealed earlier this week that he's dealing with a um, herniated disc in his back. He received an epidural shot in order to um, in order to relieve some some pain and some stress on that lower back. Look, I think everyone's had a back issue one way or another, right? Whether we're athletes or not. I know myself, I've had plenty of lower back pain and you just move and you feel that twinge. And it's like, oh, paralyzing pain. Those back injuries don't heal quick and it doesn't take a lot for them to flare back up. Ben Simmons, okay, we thought, and I'll be honest, I thought too, the Nets were kind of trying to protect him by saying, oh, the guy's dealing with a back injury when the trade was made. And even before he was traded on the Sixers, the big excuse for Ben why he wasn't playing is, oh, my back hurts, my back hurts. Well, I guess he wasn't lying because he hasn't played yet for the Nets. And with just 10 games left, it does not seem like he's going to be playing at all at any point in the regular season. And I don't know if you're the Nets. I don't see a way how you can have Ben Simmons miss an entire regular season, go through the offseason that he went uh, that he had last year where he was scrutinized publicly, and then in your first game back to the lineup, in your first return to the spotlight since passing up a dunk in that infamous Game 7 um, Eastern Conference semifinal game against the Hawks in which you lost, and you publicly got scrutinized and basically derailed your career or ended your career in Philly, I don't see how he could be able to return to the court for the first time in the playoffs on the big stage in which he crumbled with uh, crumbled on last year. So I think that for, for Ben Simmons, he's done this year. He's not playing. So now you lose a big defensive piece. You lose a big key for the Nets in terms of not scoring, but doing everything else. Facilitating the, the ball, getting the offense rolling. Getting, you know, playing good defense, matching up on guys like Giannis or matching up against guys like Jimmy Butler and trying to put the clamps on him. That's a huge piece in Ben Simmons not being on the court that, again, makes the Nets' life even harder, especially now when you are at the bottom of the barrel trying to climb your way up and having to go through a gauntlet of possibly the Heat, the Bucks, the Celtics, the Sixers, playing three out of those four teams just to make the finals, and then what, playing the Suns in the finals again? Good luck. The Nets, and especially Kyrie, has been playing great basketball of late. When he's been able to be eligible and playing in road games, he has been tremendous. This team obviously is a lot different with Kyrie on the floor than when he's off the floor, obviously. Kevin Durant's job's made a lot easier. You make the argument they would have beat the Bucks last year if just Kyrie or James Harden were healthy, obviously neither were. Kyrie missed, you know, uh, half that series with an ankle injury, and James Harden fought through a hamstring injury, but no, was nowhere near 100%. And Katie almost willingly lifted the Nets to the Eastern Conference Finals by himself. So obviously, you would think, okay, their odds should get that much better because now Kyrie is back. But the road for me is too tough, starting with what most likely will be a play-in game in Toronto without Kyrie. Your reward, playing the Sixers in the opening round. You lose that game and you get into the playoffs, your reward is them playing the Heat, the dogs of the uh, of the Eastern Conference. 
That's not easy. That is a challenge, and that's going to be tough for the Nets to dig out of. So because they're in eighth place, because this season just really went down the tubes midway through the year where they just were awful, lost 14 straight games at one point, couldn't win, you know, were injury-prone, were dealing with James Harden drama, they they had a really tough midseason stretch that put them now from still one of the top teams in the East to now bottom of the barrel scrapping just to be able to make the playoffs. I think the Eastern Conference is not like it has been in, in years past. It is deep. It is talented. And when you look at a white-hot Celtics team that's playing some of the best basketball since the start of the calendar year of any team in the league, when you look at the Buccane- uh, with the, the Buccaneers, the Bucks, the Milwaukee Bucks, since we're talking basketball, we look at how they have really started to round into form. They got Brooke Lopez back. He has helped immensely on the defensive end of the floor. The Bucks now have that confidence after being able to win the tour, uh, win the title last year. Of now, I thought the one thing last year that kind of hurt them until they won was that confidence. Well, now they have it. You look at the Sixers. I trust Joel Embiid a ton. I do not have any faith in James Harden, but there's still talent there. The Heat again. That it's going to be a defensively grueling series. That every game is going to be a rock fight. It's going to be under 100. It's going to be slow it down. Physical basketball. I think those series, having those back-to-back-to-back series in a row, is going to be too challenging, too tough for the Nets. So for me, even though Kyrie is back, even though the last few games he's played and he has been bonkers, he's been playing great again. He is shooting 61% from three alone on averaging 11 attempts per game from the field. Yet... I don't think the Nets, though, are the favorites in the East. I don't think you can pick them coming out of the East because the road to get there is too difficult. So love to hear your thoughts. What is your belief level in the Nets? Can this team, now that Kyrie Irving is back full-time, can start playing home games immediately, will be eligible outside of Toronto for every single playoff game the Nets will be in? Are the Nets, in your mind, the favorites to come out of the East? Love to get your thoughts on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show or WWSRN underscore radio. Check us out on YouTube. We're there as well. You can comment Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return here on the Ryan Hickey Show in four short minutes, the AFC, as we know, is extremely loaded. Coming off of the Chiefs trading Tyreek Hill, is Kansas City still the team to be in the AFC? We will discuss that in four minutes when we return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. Where else? The Worldwide Sports Renaric. As always, the 10 o'clock hour is sponsored by LC Design. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions. So make sure your guests are happily fed with some aesthetically pleasing and delicious. That's right, aesthetically pleasing and delicious charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark herself. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. So as we know, yesterday, the big news of the day, Tyreek Hill traded from the Chiefs to the Dolphins. With that trade now, 
And with Tyreek Hill, the cheetah, a top three receiver off the Chiefs, is Kansas City still the team to beat in the AFC? Are they still the top dogs in the conference? They have either been in the AFC title game or been to the Super Bowl each last four years. Are they still running the conference? For me, the answer is no. No Tyreek Hill on the Chiefs means they are no longer the top dogs in the AFC. The Broncos have now supplanted the Chiefs as the team to be in the AFC. Here's why. You look at it from Kansas City's perspective. The Tyree Kill trade, taking him off the team, limits the explosiveness of the offense. They will have trouble consistently opening up the deep ball, and this is an offense that thrives on pushing the ball deep first, and that opens up the rest of the offense. That opens up Travis Kelsey underneath, getting single coverage and being able to work whatever linebacker, safety, corner is mercifully put on him. It opens up second, third, fourth receivers like Juju Smith-Schuster, like Byron Pringle, in order to get more favorable matchups because teams are more concerned about Tyreek Hill and not allowing him to beat them that they allow other areas and other players to have mismatches on the field. So now with Tyreek Hill off, all the attention goes to Travis Kelsey. That guy, if defenses are smart, will be double covered every single play. There is no shot in hell. I am not doubling Travis Kelsey on any play next year. And when you look at that, okay, if Travis Kelsey is going to be taken out of the game, who is going to step up and be that game changer? Who is going to step up and take over? Oh, I can't find an answer. Juju Smith-Schuster, Schuster, easy for me to say. It's second time today I've screwed that name up. Sorry, Juju. I'll stick, we'll go simple. Juju, he's nothing special. To me, he is someone who benefits when other star players are around him. Some of his best years statistically were when Antonio Brown was with the Steelers. When Antonio Brown left, to put it politely, and Juju had to take over that number one role, he can't do it. He, to me, is not a game-breaker. He's more of a possession receiver that does benefit when someone else is getting all of the attention. So I don't think Juju is the type of player that can now all of a sudden take over this Chiefs offense and make defenses pay when they double-cover Travis Kelsey. I don't trust Byron Pringle. I don't trust Clyde Edwards-Alaire to take over a game, take over, um, yeah, be productive and be deadly. Um, like Terry Kill was in order to truly now open up the rest of the offense. So I can't see anyone being able to come in and be as explosive and as dominant as Tyreek Hill was. And when you look on the other side of the ball, defensively, this team can't bail you out defensively. It's been the other way around. The offense has been the one bailing out the defense um, almost every single year and almost every single big game. So you can't rely on this defense to win you a few games like maybe the Packers could last year when Aaron Rodgers had a bad game. Or like the Bengals did at some points in the playoffs when Joe Burrow had, okay, played okay, but nothing spectacular like in that Titans game. You cannot rely on this Chiefs defense to really win you any game. It's all on the offense. It is now all on Patrick Mahomes, and his job got a whole hell of a, a lot harder when you take away a top three receiver in the NFL and you take away a piece of the offense that fit this team perfectly. Again, remember what happened last year. Teams in the middle of the year started to realize, huh, if we take away the deep ball, if we basically play prevent defense to keep everything in front of us, 
I wonder what's going to happen. We'll see if the Chiefs can respond. And for a large part of the year, they didn't. Why? It's in Andy Reid's DNA. It's in Patrick Mahomes' DNA to push the ball down the field. They're not patient. Most games, they were not okay with taking the check down, with taking the three-yard dump-offs at a time to the, to the running backs or backup tight end. They were not okay with going on 12-play, 75-yard drives. They wanted the three- or four-play, 75-yard drive with a lot of chunk plays in between. They grew impatient and still forced the ball deep, even though teams were double-covering uh, uh, Tyreek Hill. They doubled Travis Kelsey. And all of a sudden, the Chiefs had no answers. We saw it again flare up in the AFC title game in the second half where the Bengals totally changed their defense and the Chiefs had no answer. So now, you take away the one thing Patrick Holmes and Andy Reid love doing, dialing up the deep ball, and you think that though the offense is just going to keep on going, keep on humming? The machine doesn't stop? No, that's not happening. The Chiefs are still going to be a really good team. The Chiefs, to me, are still a lock to make the playoffs, and they're going to be absolutely Super Bowl contenders. But I can't sit here without the most outside Patrick Holmes important part of their offense taken away, part of the offense that is kind of in their DNA, and then sit here and say, oh, yeah, it's all you know, sunshine and roses. They'll be fine. They'll figure it out. No. If they don't use these picks the Dolphins gave them to get Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf, this team is not in the top. Uh, this is, or I should say, this team is not the team to beat in the AFC. They are not the number one team in the conference after trading away Tyree Kill. That title goes to Denver because Denver is the most balanced team in all of the AFC. One of the most balanced teams, maybe arguably, the most balanced team in all of the NFL because they have everything you need to win. They have the elite quarterback. Russell Wilson is a top five guy. I understand the second half of 2020 did not go well. And the offense really cooled off after a sizzling start. I get 2021 was a total disaster. I think a lot of that had to do with Russ's injury and coming back too soon. But also, even going back to 2020, the second half of Russ's struggles weren't on him, in my opinion. It was on Pete Carroll and the play calling. They became uber conservative. They all of a sudden got nervous because he threw a few too many picks, despite the fact they ignored all the touchdown passes he was throwing, all the points the Seahawks were scoring, and all the games Seattle was winning. Pete Cow wants to win in one way only, running the ball and playing good defense. He is a very conservative coach. Ten years ago, it worked. Credit to him, he won a Super Bowl and got to two in a row. But the NFL has adjusted in recent time. The NFL has become an aired out deep ball chunk play league and Pete Carroll's failed to adjust. So I think a lot of Russell Wilson's downfall, we'll say the last two years, was on the head coach and the style of play the head coach wanted to play with. So I think Russ is an elite quarterback still. He's going to come in and light it up for the Broncos. So you have what every team, every Super Bowl contender needs is that elite quarterback. You have a really solid run game led by Javante Williams. So now... Russell Wilson would actually have a run game he can lean on that is consistent, that gives the uh, some balance to this Denver offense. As we know, he has a ton of wide receiver weapons. You have Jerry Judy, you have Tim Patrick, you have Cortland Sutton. You have a really solid defense on all three levels. Last year, I know it's easy to overlook or forget because 
I mean, really, honestly, who cared that much about the Broncos last year? They had Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke starting games for them. So I get everyone tuning out. They were never really in the playoff picture. So it's easy for, you know, easy for everyone. It's like, eh, okay, the Broncos are okay. Let's not really pay attention to them. Let's look at other teams that are winning and fun. But the Broncos last year were third in points per game allowed. They were eighth in total defense. This is a top 10 defensive unit that can get after the quarterback. That has a really good secondary which is going to become very important in that AFC West um, when you're facing Mahomes, Herbert, and Carr now six times next year. The Broncos' defense is really deep, again, at all three levels, and they are able to get stops. So when you look at the elite quarterback, you have a talented running back, you have talented, multiple talented receivers, you have a really good defense you can lean on, the Broncos have the flexibility now to win games in all sorts of matters. And that, to me, that versatility bumps them up over the Chiefs, where the Chiefs still have only one way to win, and that's in a shootout. They need to be scoring 28, 31, 35 points a game because this defense can't be relied upon to win your games. The offense now, unfortunately, with the loss of Tyree Kill, is going to be, you know, put even more pressure on the shoulders of Patrick Mahomes. The uh, Pat, um, Andy Reid is not a very patient play caller at times. He wants to be aggressive, which works out sometimes. Other times like this, when you don't have a deep threat, could go back to Paichi when running the ball is a simple solution. The Chiefs do get away from running the ball, I think, too many times. So you have an aggressive head coach, an aggressive quarterback, taking away one of the most, you know, one of the important pieces that allows them to be as aggressive as they are. They don't run the ball with any sort of consistency or patience that they should. The Chiefs, to me, now are too one-dimensional. It is too air raid or bust. You need to have balance. The Chiefs don't have balance. That, to me, is why the Broncos have surpassed them as the team to be in the AFC. I have the Broncos above teams like the Bills because I don't think the Bills are as balanced right now as the Broncos are. The receiving depth behind Stephon Diggs does scare me a little in Buffalo. I know Gabe Davis, the last game he played him is that four-touchdown epic playoff game against the Chiefs where he had really his coming-out party. But can he be that consistent player? Can he be that number two guy at times one ace to Stephon Diggs? Right now, the jury's out for me. I can't sit here and say he's going to be that consistent player and kind of pick up where he left off in the playoff game last year. Cole Beasley is a security blanket was just cut. Um, so for me, I know they have Jamison Crowder. Eh, okay, James Crowder's on the on the tail end of his career. I just don't like the depth the Bills have a receiver behind Stephon Diggs. I don't I still question their ability to get after the quarterback. I know they got Von Miller um, on a big time deal. I still wonder if they can consistently get after the quarterback on a consistent basis, which you're going to have to do in a conference that is filled with elite young quarterbacks. The best way to slow them down is by taking them to the ground. So for me, the Bills just aren't as balanced as the Broncos. They're right up there. I think you know them and the Chiefs are still in the elite category. But I think the Broncos just a nudge, just a notch above the um, above Buffalo. So I think the Broncos are, are more balanced and more talented than the Bills are right now. Also, not really thrilled with how Buffalo ran the ball for a large part of last year, and I don't see that changing too much. Although at times, for mostly they relied too heavily on um, on Josh Allen to win them the game, either with his legs or with his arm. And now you lose Brian Dable, a very smart offensive mind. Um, I do wonder how that loss is going to impact Buffalo. So I, I do give the, the edge to Denver 
over the Bills. The Chargers have had one of the best off-seasons of anyone in the NFL. They retained Mike Williams. They signed J.C. Jackson. They traded for Khalil Mack. They are loading up, but I'm still worried about the run defense. There was a third-worst rush defense in all of the NFL. And you think I'm nitpicking, let's go back to last year and that Week 18, basically playoff game that was against the Raiders where the winner is in. What lost the Chargers the game? It was not Brandon Staley calling a timeout in overtime where there was a thought that you know proved to be false after the game. There was a thought in the moment the Raiders were going to take the tie and run out the clock and both teams were going to get into the playoffs. But instead, the reason why the Raiders got in field goal position, they kicked the field goal, was because they ran the ball with a lot of success. They ripped off a huge run. The run defense has been the Achilles heel for the Chargers all season long, and it still hasn't gotten any better. That does scare me where the biggest weak link, the arguably the biggest reason why the Chargers were at home in the postseason last year has not been solidified. Kulimak should help, but still they need help in the interior. They did not address that so far. So they had a nice offseason, but I still give the Broncos credit because, again, I think they're more well-balanced and more polished. The Bengals, to their credit, have improved their biggest weakness, which is offensive line. And they were awful last year, as we know. They signed Ted Karras. They signed Alex Kappa coming over from the Bucks. They have made a lot of moves. They signed Lyle Collins as well now to uh, shore up the tackle position. To the Bengals' credit, they have done everything possible in order to um, improve this offensive line to give Joe Burrow a chance to be upright and have success. I just think the depth and the talent right now for Denver is a little bit stronger than it is in Cincinnati. And the Browns, you get to Sean Watson, I think instant Super Bowl contender in my mind. The one thing, though, with the Browns right now is their lack of receivers. They have Amari Cooper. I don't trust Amari Cooper, to be completely honest. To me, he's too inconsistent to be that go-to receiver because there's too many big games where he, frankly, and flat-out disappears. He disappears. You're paying him $20 million a year. He is nowhere near a $20 million a year receiver. So you still need help at the receiver position. And you need probably multiple receivers, whether it's a draft or whether it's still free agency or trade, to bring in to give Deshaun Watson you know, some real weapons on the outside. Not to mention, speaking of Deshaun Watson, I can't say the Browns are right now the team to be in the AFC when you have a looming suspension coming. We have no idea how long the suspension for Deshaun Watson is going to be. I personally think it's going to be four games or less. I would be shocked if it's anything more. I think the Browns could tread water for four games with Jacoby Brissett. But with that said, though, that's still a good amount of time for Deshaun Watson to miss to where I don't think the team to be in the conference can uh, can overcome that. Again, I could be wrong, and it could be a lot more games. It could be half the season for all we know. We have no idea. Six games even. So with that impending suspension looming, with the need at receiver, um, I give the Broncos the edge over the Browns. So whether it is Cleveland, whether it's Buffalo, whether it's Cincinnati, whether it's LA, or whether it's Kansas City, I think in one way or another, the Broncos have the edge in the category for me. The Broncos are the team to be in the AFC heading into the 2022 season. How about you? Would you right now, sitting here on March 24th, 2022, would you peg the Broncos as the team to beat in the AFC, or is it still the Chiefs, or is it another team? Are you like the Bills more than the Broncos? you like the Bengals? Show them some respect coming off of a Super Bowl appearance. Who, in your mind, is the team to beat right now in the AFC? We'll get your thoughts. Twitter, 
uh, at Ryan Hickey Show. You can tweet me your thoughts. You can comment on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You can comment on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Who is the team to beat in the AFC? We'll get your thoughts. And when we return, the quarterback carousel is almost set for the most part. We have two quarterbacks we got to figure out the landing spots for, Jimmy G and Baker Mayfield. I have a solution for each. And one requires, or both actually, require them being backups immediately. I'll tell you why that is when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back in. Ryan Hickey here with you trying to decipher who the best team now is in the AFC with Tyreek Hill now off the Chiefs, traded to the Dolphins. Are the Chiefs still the top dogs in the AFC or is it someone else? For me, I think it's the Broncos. The Broncos are the team I give right now the um, the attention to, the crown to, as the team to be in the AFC. But... Ryan Hickey tweets me at Ryan Hickey Show. I did not tweet myself. There are plenty of Ryan Hickeys out there. This one happens to be, I guess, the realest one. I guess I'm the fake Ryan Hickey because his Twitter handle is at Real Ryan Hickey. Does tweet, I guess, the fake Ryan Hickey, which is me. He says, Bills are the top dogs in the AFC. He gives the Bills the edge over the Broncos. He gives the Bills the edge over the Chiefs. I still think it's the Broncos. I think they're a little bit more talented. And I like the balance, offense, defense, at every position, a slight bit more in Denver than I do in Buffalo. But I guess i got to figure out now what the deal is. I mean, there can't be two real Ryan Hickeys. I thought I was the real Ryan Hickey. But this guy tweets me at real Ryan Hickey. So if I'm the fake Ryan Hickey, I guess this is the fake Ryan Hickey show. Rebranding is coming. So we'll take your thoughts here on who the best team in the AFC is. Is it the Chiefs or is it another team? At Ryan Hickey Show right now on Twitter, Facebook Worldwide Sports Radio Network, or on YouTube also Worldwide Sports Radio Network. But I do want to at least take a break from the Tyreek Hill conversation to talk about the future of two quarterbacks right now that are in limbo. Baker Mayfield and Jimmy G. I have the best solution for both on what they should do, how to get their careers back in 2022 and beyond. Let's start with the polarizing one that is Baker Mayfield. There is only one situation, I think, that makes the most sense for Baker and it makes the most sense for this team acquiring Baker in 2022. That's the Buccaneers. I think it's Baker's best shot if he goes to Tampa and is a backup In 2022, I think it's his best shot to become a franchise quarterback. And if you're the Buccaneers, you ask, well, why the hell would they have, you know, they have Tom Brady. Why the hell would the the Bucs want Baker? Because for the Buccaneers, I think it's also their best chance at keeping their window open for Super Bowl contention beyond just 2022 and potentially beyond just 2023. When we look at Baker's, from his perspective first, right? Going to a place where he can start immediately this season, I don't think is beneficial for his his long-term success. I will try not to hurt the mic in the process of talking on the show. But like I was saying, from just destructing this entire studio, 
there's, to me, no benefit of Baker going to a place where he can start in 2022 because you look at the teams that are interested. Right now, the only team that's interested in Baker's services reportedly and publicly are the Seahawks. Seahawks have been the one team that have been floated out there multiple occasions that are you know interested or kind of sniff around Baker Mayfield and would think about bringing him in. If you are Baker, on the last year of your rookie deal, I would not want to go to Seattle and play on that team because I think it sets you up for failure more than it sets you up for success. The offensive line is not very talented. They do not block very well. The run game, which Pete Carroll loves to die for, wants to rely on, is also not very consistent because Chris Carson, solid running back, can't stay healthy. So you have a bad line an inconsistent running back. You have DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, yes. But, according to reports, the reports are out there yesterday that the Packers and Chiefs are both inquiring about trading for one of those two receivers. I do think if you're Seattle, it behooves you and it's in your best interest to trade Tyler Lockett this offseason because he's older, his contract is favorable where you'll get some good return back, and you are not in a position to where you're going to win let's say the next year or two. So I think it makes sense if you are the Seahawks to trade Tyler Lockett. I would still keep DK, but who knows what John Schneider and Pete Carroll are thinking. Who knows what offer they get for either one of those receivers. So you could lose one, if not both of those receivers this offseason. You just cut Bobby Wagner. So the Seahawks can tell you, oh, we're in the business of competing in 2022. Their actions speak differently. Their actions tell you they're entering a rebuild. So if you're Baker Mayfield, with one year to try to rectify your career and kind of rebuild your image, I don't think going to Seattle, playing in a very tough NFC West, playing for a team that's in the process of rebuilding, I don't think that benefits you to getting a long-term contract and getting another team to believe you can be their franchise quarterback. So I think more harm than good can come from Baker playing for a bad team next year. Which is why I think 2022 being a backup is the smartest play for Baker and why the Bucks are the best option for Baker, why it's a destination he should want, is twofold. Number one, I mean, hell, you're sitting behind Tom Brady. You're going to learn a thing or two. You're going to learn how to play the quarterback position better. You're going to learn how to build some good habits. Frankly, whether you think you need it or not, you're going to learn humility. You're going to learn maturity. And you're going to grow as a person and as a quarterback. So you can now make yourself and learn how to be a better quarterback, rehab your image by kind of shadowing Tom Brady And if Tom Brady likes you, having him speaking glowingly about you and your process and your commitment to being better, I think that will go a long way with a lot of teams. If Tom Brady gives you a ringing endorsement, that'll be great for your stock next year. And whether Tom decides, you know, to return in 2023, okay, fine. I think Baker, again, having that stamp of approval from Tom Brady will have teams more inclined to sign him and bring him in than right now. Because again, 
outside of Seattle, there's no team that's seemingly interested in Baker Mayfield. The Panthers seem like they're going to draft a quarterback. They have no one. The Falcons are in an open tank mode. They signed Marcus Mariota. The Steelers signed 5 million different backup quarterbacks that are going to be journeymen that are all going to fight for it. The Commanders made a, a decision to trade for Carson Wentz. I have no idea why they rushed to do it, but they did. A lot of teams with that should have been into Baker Mayfield are not at the moment. So instead of going to a bad situation in 2022... Go to the Buccaneers, sit behind Tom Brady, and even if he returns in 2023, you could become a better person, rehab your image, and I think you'll get a, a stamp of approval from Tom that will make other teams interested in you next season. I mean, the other reason why the Buccaneers make sense is because if Tom doesn't return, if Brady decides, you know what, 2022 is it, I'm actually retiring after that season, or if he decides, I'm going to keep playing, but I want to go elsewhere. I want to go to Miami, or who knows what happens to the Trey Lance. I want to go to San Francisco to finish on my career. If Tom Brady leaves the Buccaneers and plays for someone else in 2023 or retires, you being the backup, you being in the building, you working with Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich every single day makes you basically the front runner to replace Tom Brady. And that team is ready to win now. And that is arguably one of the best situations, if it becomes open, for Baker Mayfield to land on, to play with. If Tom Brady is elsewhere in 2023 and Baker is the starting quarterback for the Buccaneers, you're feeling really good about them winning the division and making a legitimate run in the playoffs. Again, let's not forget. I know it's easy to bag on Baker um, for how he played in 2021 and the Browns massively underachieved as a team and especially Baker as a quarterback. But this is the same quarterback that threw 15 touchdowns, two picks, the final seven games of the season, won you a playoff game for the first time in 25 years, or 26 years, got you to the playoffs for the first time in almost two decades. This is a quarterback that still knows how to win and arguably played his best football in the most important stretch in, in recent Browns history. This is a guy who I think still can win. And now, if you put him on the Buccaneers in 2023, where you'll still have Chris Goblin, who signed a long-term extension, where you still have Leonard Fournette, you'll still have Mike Evans, you still have important pieces on the offensive line, you are giving Baker now a real chance at success. And if you're Baker, the Buccaneers in 2023 are one of the best teams you will be playing for. It's one of the best options. You're in an easier NFC. The Saints right now are running back Jameis Winston. The Carolina Panthers don't have a quarterback. The, the Falcons are tanking. So you should easily, with you a quarterback, win your division, get a home playoff game. The Rams, still very talented. Who knows about the Packers? They just lost Devonta Adams. Well, you know, we'll see how big of a loss if they can't replace him. Uh, but that's going to be. The Cowboys are frauds. The Cardinals, I don't trust to play well uh, down the stretch. The Buccaneers, even with Baker Mayfield, will be one of the favorites in the NFC to go to the Super Bowl in 2023. So if you're Baker taking a step back in 2022, sitting behind Tom, and either getting his stamp of approval and vote of confidence to go elsewhere will, will benefit your career, or you take over the Bucs after Tom Brady leaves or retires in 2023, and you right now are on the short list of Super Bowl contenders in a wide open and easier NFC. So, you look around, this to me, being a backup for Baker, is by far the best option for him 
to become a franchise quarterback and have success. It sounds counter, uh, counterintuitive. Take a step back, go be someone's backup and not play in 2022. But when you look at it from that lens I just laid out, and when you look at some of the quarterbacks that have gotten signed to become starters recently, going in the backup role actually behooves Baker Mayfield for his future. And let's look at three quarterbacks right now that are either signed to start or are starting for teams. They were backups. Jameis Winston with the Saints. After his Buccaneers career ended, he went to New Orleans to back up Drew Brees. When Drew Brees retired after uh, 2020, guess who got the call? Jameis Winston. He was in the building. He knew the offense. He was familiar with the system. He impressed the coaches enough to give him a chance. They got him on a one-year deal. And now, despite the fact he got hurt halfway through the year last year, he was signed on a two-year deal. He is going to be the Saints' starting quarterback. So Jameis Winston, back up to starter, worked out for him. Mitch Trubisky backed up Josh Allen last year, rebuilt his image, had people in Buffalo who had a lot of success talking highly about how he worked and how he played and how he practiced. That got him to sign with the Steelers. He is a Steelers starting quarterback. Ryan Tannehill, a few years ago, was traded to the Titans to back up Marcus Mariota. Well, guess what? Mariota struggled. Tannehill took over. They went to the uh, AFC title game in 2019. Tannehill hasn't looked back. He's been the Titans' starting quarterback. Even Marcus Mariota, I know a little different because the Titans are in the business, uh, or the, the Falcons are in the business of losing next year. But he is a backup to Derek Carr, built his stock up, and now is the Falcons' starting quarterback. So now we have seen a path from backup to a good quarterback to getting signed to be the starter. And we've seen a direct path with a lot of the teams these players sign with elevating to the starting quarterback. So I do think for Baker, it makes the most sense for him to go to Tampa, sit behind Tom, learn from the GOAT, and whether he retires, take over for Tom, or whether he returns in 2023 and plays for the Bucks, you kind of get that stamp of approval from Tom, and I think that helps improve your stock in the eyes of other teams who are going to be back in the quarterback carousel next season. So if you're Baker Mayfield, taking a step back in 2022, becoming a backup at Tampa Bay is going to serve you in the long run big time. And that is why Tampa Bay, for me, in my opinion, should be Baker Mayfield's number one and only destination he either tries to get traded to or he gets cut and goes to sign with. That should be the team because I think it best benefits Baker's long-term success. For Jimmy G and the 49ers, kind of a similar sentiment. I think if you're Jimmy G, I think you're right now you'd rather sit tight. And if you're the 49ers, I think it makes sense for you to hold on to Jimmy G. No rush in trading him. I think the 49ers should absolutely slow play this. Hold him into training camp. Have him on the roster into next season. I think that would benefit both Jimmy G and the 49ers the most. By playing it calm, playing it cool and patient, and holding on to Jimmy G in the training camp, and if you have to, into the season. I think no matter what, whether Jimmy G's on the roster or not, Trey Lance should be the starter next year. Trey Lance should be the week one starter. But I think it's worth it for the 49ers, even worth it for Jimmy G, to go into next season on the 49ers roster, being the backup, and here's why. I think for Jimmy G, his best shot at starting right now, his best shot at success is waiting for a team to get desperate. Waiting until training camp for a starting quarterback to get hurt. Waiting for a quarterback competition 
that does not pan out the way team thought it would. Waiting until early in the season for a quarterback to for a team that thinks a quarterback is going to play well that ends up not playing well. If you're Jimmy G, your best shot at becoming a starter and having success in 2022, because let's not forget, Jimmy G, end of the year press conference after the season ended, basically said he wants to go to a winning team. It's not just about starting for him. It's about starting and having success. He doesn't want to go to the Texans and lose 13 games next year. He wants to be able to go to a team that has a chance to win a lot of games and make the playoffs. I think the best shot of if you're Jimmy G of accomplishing that right now is by waiting. Is by waiting for someone to get hurt. Is by waiting for someone to stink it up the first four games of the season and getting a midseason trade. Injury or poor play, I think, is Jimmy G's right now best track, fastest track to getting a starting job on a playoff caliber team. And if you're the 49ers, the reason why you should also be interested in keeping Jimmy G, the reason why you should be on board with kind of slow playing this and keeping him through the offseason, through training camp, and even into the season is because you will get the most back for Jimmy G from a desperate team that needs him. Let's not forget, the Vikings, I know we could call it a fluke injury. It doesn't happen every every year. But when Teddy Bridgewater blew out his knee a few years ago in training camp, before, uh, the Vikings gave the Eagles a first-round pick for Sam Bradford. A team will be desperate enough to give a first- or a second-round pick to the 49ers for Jimmy G if the quarterback situation for said team does not go well. If Carson Wentz is sucking in training camp for the Commanders, if he's 0-2 to start the season and not playing well, the Commanders, I think, would absolutely be desperate to call up the 49ers. What do you want? Second round pick, first round pick, give me Jimmy G. Because right now, whether you're Jimmy G or the 49ers, there's nowhere for him to go. Carolina seems dead set on drafting a quarterback at number six. The Falcons are Marcus Mariota, the Colts are Matt Ryan, the Steelers are Mitch Trubisky, the Commanders with, with, you know, aforementioned Wentz. All have found their 2022 starting option at the moment. The only thing that would change that for those teams, injury or poor play. So right now, there is nowhere for Jimmy G to go where he will be the starter on a competitive team. So if you're Jimmy G, the best way for you to get back on the field, I think, is, is by waiting. Not to mention you have a shoulder injury, so teams are still reluctant right now to trade for you. And if you're the 49ers, I don't think you want to give him away for nothing. I think it's more beneficial for San Francisco to hold on to him right now have him serve as a mentor for Trey Lance's offseason. Have him rehab a said shoulder injury so teams feel more comfortable later on in the rehab process of trading for a guy and that injury becomes less of a question mark. And again, that price will be driven up if a team becomes desperate for a quarterback and they need one. That comes, that desperation comes, that high price comes when a team suffers an injury or when a team's quarterback struggles either in training camp or out of the game. So I think it makes the most sense if you're the 49ers and you're Jimmy G, both, to slow play this. Take your time. Don't throw away Jimmy G just because. Don't just give him away for a fifth round pick or even cut him. Hold on to him. Have him stay in the building. Have him work with Trey Lance. By all accounts, last year he did wonders with Trey Lance and, and was a great teammate. Have him rehab the injury and build his draft stock up and, and have teams now that are competitive become more interested in him because of an injury or because of poor play. 
That, to me, is Jimmy G's best shot at become a starter for a playoff team next year is by waiting it out and staying at San Francisco at the moment. And if you're Baker Mayfield, I think your best bet for getting your career back on track, becoming that franchise quarterback you strive to be, getting that big franchise quarterback salary, is by taking a step back, going the backup route, going to Tampa, sitting behind Tom Brady, and either taking over for Brady in 2023 or using that voter confidence that Brady will give you to parlay that into another team signing you next year. I think Baker's best bet for success is by taking a step back and being a backup. And for Jimmy G, his right now, his best path to success and playing for a competitive team is by staying right now in San Francisco. So I'm curious your thoughts here. What should the 49ers do with Jimmy G? Should they be patient and hold on to him? Or should they just deal him for anything? And if you're a Baker Mayfield, does it make sense for you to become a backup next season? Does taking a step back, putting your ego and pride at the door for a year, benefit you in the long run? Or is it detrimental to him to getting another starting job back? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Facebook Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. At Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We're also on YouTube. Check us out. Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So get your thoughts on the futures of Baker and Jimmy G. And when we return, are the Chiefs the top dog in the AFC? Does this trade for Tyree Kill make any sense from their perspective? We will revisit the big trade from yesterday from the Chiefs' perspective when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. <laughs> And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show, going to the top of the hour here on a Thursday morning. Let's revisit the biggest trade of the day and see if there's any path we can make sense of the Tyree Kill trade from the Chiefs perspective. I'll give the answer right now. No. I can't find a silver lining. I can't find a way to spin this in a positive for the Chiefs. To me, this trade makes absolutely no sense. The only way, I guess I should say, I could see it making sense. I could see this being a positive, and I could see the Chiefs getting better from here, not worse, is if they take the five picks the Dolphins traded them yesterday, package them up, put them in a nice, you know, nice tidy bundle, put a nice bow on top, and ship them off to Seattle, and in return get either Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf. Tyler Lockett's a little bit older than, than Tyreek Hill, but is a big-time D-threat, and his contract is very manageable, and DK Metcalf is a stud. See him walk into the building. The guy is humongous. He is fast. He is big. He is strong. He is young and he's under contract on a rookie deal. That is the only way I could justify the Tyree Kill trade making sense from the Chiefs perspective is if you are able to use the picks you got to get either Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf. If they don't, if the Chiefs actually go into the draft, and use the picks the Dolphins gave them on college athletes, I think it is the stupidest trade the Chiefs could have made. Because that trade alone has now dethroned them as a team to beat in the AFC. And I don't think even right now, the Chiefs are the most talented team in the AFC West. I think the Broncos have them beat. I think the Broncos are a more balanced and better team. So as I'm trying to look for a silver lining here, if the Chiefs don't make a massive trade 
and they instead try to take chances on college receivers or patch it together with, I don't know, OBJ and Juju Smith-Schuster and Marquez Valdez-Scanlon, this team got a lot worse, and they are no longer the team to be in a loaded AFC. Because, yes, while they still have Patrick Holmes, while they still have Andy Reid, and they still have Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill was integral to how this offense worked. This is an offense that loves being aggressive, loves pushing the ball deep, loves explosive chunk plays. Well, how either they were able to do so or open it up for others to do so is the deep threat of Tyreek Hill. Right? How many times have we seen our teams, our defensive backs, whoever we root for, get burned by Tyreek Hill? Often. Everyone's been there. Tyreek Hill is the best deep threat in the NFL, top three receiver overall in the league. So his presence alone opened up the Kansas City offense and for Patrick Holmes and his huge arm, right, made it super easy for him um, and, and gave him a reliable weapon to basically any time throw the ball up deep and feel confident Tyreek Hill is going to come down with it and have it uh, become a huge play. But if teams started to take away Tyreek Hill, they started double covering him deep, that opened up areas for, uh, for Travis Kelsey over the middle, opened up, you know, mismatches for... Sammy Watkins when he used to be in Kansas City or Byron Pringle or Jarek McKinnon. It opened up ancillary pieces. Second, third, fourth options for Kansas City to be open and have mismatches and have success because a lot of the defense's worries started with number 10. You take Tyreek Hill now off of this team, off the field, out of this offense. Teams now, it's become so much easier to slow down and, and try to um, contain this Chiefs offense. Like I said, this this is a, an aggressive offense built on the deep ball. Their offense with Patrick Holmes and Andy Reid does start with a deep threat with Tyreek Hill. When you take that away, you now have an offense that wants to push the ball deep but can't. There's no real deep threat there. Michael Hardman is a fast kind of clone-like receiver of Tyreek Hill, but he's a poor man's Tyreek Hill. He's not going to be able to step in, even though he's fast like him, not be able to be the same deep threat and not have defenses really worrying the way Tyreek Hill had defenses worrying. Travis Kelsey is going to get double covered on every single play now so that there's no threat of Tyreek Hill. And you look around the rest of the receivers that are out there, the rest of the options, Juju Smith-Schuster, not a number one wide receiver. Not someone I'm scared of. Byron Pringle. Is Byron Pringle, let me, uh, Byron Pringle, let me ask you this, is he keeping you up at night? No. There's no weapon, there's no receiver, there's no threat in the Chiefs offense outside of Travis Kelsey that will have defenses panicking. So now, when it becomes easier to defend, when the biggest threat, and there's only one big threat instead of two now, the offense is going to struggle more than it did in recent years. Let's not forget. Remember last year. Last year, midway through the year, the Chiefs had that offensive slog where they looked lost. They frankly looked broken. Why? Because teams started playing prevent defense. They started taking away Tyreek Hill and not allowing him to beat them deep. And guess what? The Chiefs couldn't adjust. They didn't know what to do. When they weren't throwing the ball deep, and when Travis Kelsey was double-covered underneath, they looked like a deer in the headlights. Patrick Holmes at times looked like an awful quarterback. Andy Reid looked like a bad play caller. And for a large part of the middle chunk of the year, this Chiefs offense looked pedestrian. 
It all started with the taking away of Tyreek Hill and eliminating the deep threat. So now Patrick Holmes couldn't roll out and just chuck the ball 40 yards down the field and have Tyreek Hill one-on-one with the safety. Have a you know that threat of a huge play at any point. And now, we saw how pedestrian that offense was in the middle of the year and how it came back to bite them in the AFC title game. Well, now you are basically forcing the Chiefs to play like that for the entire season. One hand tied behind their back. I mean, that's you're asking a lot now for Patrick Holmes and Andy Reid to continue to put up the offensive production they have without a top three receiver there, without the most important part of their offense on the field. They are going to struggle. And it's why I think teams like the Broncos, who are deeper and more balanced, they are going to overtake them. The Broncos are the team to beat in the AFC because they have different ways they can beat you. They are balanced offensively and defensively. And Russell Wilson is an elite quarterback. Patrick Holmes is still an elite quarterback. Andy Reid is still a great head coach. But when you take away now the deep threat of Tyreek Hill, when you remove a top three receiver from your roster, it's going to be a lot harder to score. I think the large parts where even though the Chiefs were still winning games when their offense wasn't great, it was a struggle. They were winning games more in the 20s than they were in the 30s. It's going to be tough for them to overcome because they don't have anyone outside of Travis Kelsey that really poses a threat to the defense, which now means that it's easier to defend Kelsey. It's easier to keep Mahomes in the pocket, and it's easier to make this explosive Kansas City offense more neutered. So I don't see how in a Super Bowl window where the Chiefs goal every single year is Super Bowl or bust, it's not to make the playoffs. It is not to, you know, win a playoff game. Their goal every single year is to win the Super Bowl and anything short as a failure. I don't see how trading away a top three receiver in the NFL, moving on from Terry Kill, who arguably is the most important weapon in that offense, he is really kind of what makes that offense go and his threat and his deep ball ability is what opens up the offense for everyone else. I don't see how removing that makes the Chiefs now a better team. I don't see how this in the short term makes the Chiefs right now the team to beat in the AFC. The Broncos are overtaking them. Because right now the Chiefs got a lot worse yesterday in a, in a, in a division in a conference where everyone else is getting better. Unless you trade for Lockett or Metcalf, this Chiefs team got worse, and it, they, to me, took a step back in the division. They took a step back in the conference. They are not now the team to be in the AFC heading into 2022. So I can't justify this trade. I can't see how it's a benefit for Kansas City because, let's be honest, they haven't really been good at drafting receivers. I mean, look at Tyreek Hill. They have him, right? Six years ago, they got him. They have Travis Kelsey. They have drafted receivers in the past. It's not worked out. They've signed receivers in the past. It's not worked out. They have never been able to find any sort of consistent threat to Kelsey uh, and Hill. And I don't see how that's going to start right now. So I think the Chiefs got worse, not better. I can't justify this trade at all. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show on this Thursday. We appreciate you tuning in and making us a part of your Thursday morning. A lot of Sweet 16 action we will definitely be excited for tonight. So hopefully your bracket's still alive. Fingers crossed it will still be good to go tomorrow. So enjoy the games tonight. Enjoy the games tomorrow. Have a great, safe, and sound weekend. I'm sure we'll have some big-time NFL news uh, between now and Monday mornings. That always happens right now. 
So between now and Monday, we we will easy for me to say. We're really ending the show on a strong note here. Between now and Monday's show, we will be back on Monday. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you then right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.